Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Lou Kerner, a good friend and founder at Just Stable. Lou, it's great to have you on. Hey, Josh. It's great to be here. So you've had... One of the most storied careers, I think, in, in crypto, uh, pre-crypto, you know, I, I mean, I, I didn't even write everything down here, but you started your career at Bain, did equity research at, at Goldman, you know, you were the CEO of dot TV, the dot .TV Corporation, MD at Wedbush, partner at Second Shares, founded the Social Internet Fund, and, and just so much more. Can you give us a bit of background on yourself and what your life was like pre, pre-crypto rabbit hole? Sure. Um, so really, my, my first career, I would say, was as an equity analyst on Wall Street. And I really enjoyed that because, you know, you got to drill down really, really deep. Um, I followed cable and satellite companies, uh, and it was a super interesting field changing all the time. And, and I really enjoyed it. And one of the macro lessons I learned was it's, it's good to be a cable company uh, because you're a monopoly. And uh, monopolies were good. And I, I got an opportunity. Uh, Bill Gross from ID Lab called me uh, one day and offered me to be the CEO of an internet monopoly. He had acquired the rights to the top level domain .tv from the island nation of Tuvalu. Uh, and uh, I thought it was the greatest idea I'd ever heard. And uh, it was an incredibly exciting two years uh, running a, a, an internet company and, and being a part of Idealab, which was the original internet incubator. I was the 55th company in the Idealab incubator when I joined. They raised a billion cash at a $10 billion valuation a month after I joined. So it was really felt like the center of the internet universe at the at the time. And it was really a, an amazing place to learn. Uh, after that, I ran a company called Bolt, uh, co-ran, which was an early social network. Uh, we were the largest social network before MySpace peaking about 23 million kids a week. And after that, I, I had kind of, yeah, running a company, Josh, as, as you're finding out now, is really, really hard work. And it and it's and it's an emotional roller coaster for everybody. And the highs are amazing, but the lows are really devastating. Uh, and after Bolt, um, you know, and 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 turning 40, um, you know, I decided, yeah, I, I was fine kind of giving up those highs uh, to give up the lows. Uh, and, and not have those anymore. And uh, and I became an investor, first as an angel investor, uh, and then somebody eventually offered to raise me a fund. I became a VC in 2012, uh, uh, pivoted to focus on investing in tech companies founded by Israelis, and then um, saw the internet, you know, saw, saw the crypto light <laughs> on June 29th, 2017. Uh, and that's what I've been doing ever since. And to some degree, um, you know, I, I really see myself as being attracted to shiny objects and uh, crypto is really the shiniest object I've ever seen. And uh, I, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to see anything shinier for a long time. So one of those shiny objects that you, you notably saw was you were one of the first big Facebook bulls. Um, so, so what initially attracted you to the Facebook story and what was your thesis you know, early on? And, and then, you know, more importantly, I, you know, I'd love to know what your view is on Facebook today. Sure. So uh, 
you know, my, one of the macro lessons I have from my time working on Wall Street is that the markets are really efficient and that you really needed an edge you know, to outperform the market. And if you didn't have one, the best thing was just to put your money in ETFs and indexes and such. And uh, I really felt that if I had one good idea a year as a Wall Street analyst, that was a, a, a great year. And then you know, when I was operating companies, when I was running Bolt, which was a social network, uh, very quickly, you know, our core audience was 16-year-old girls. Uh, and very quickly, I realized I was not going to come up with the next great idea for what 16-year-old girls want to do on the internet. But it turned out that there were a lot of 16, 18, 20-year-old kids who were building websites and aggregating meaningful audiences, uh, but didn't have the ability to monetize it well, which my company, Bolt, uh, were, were kings at. Um, and so we did eight acquisitions in three years. I talked to more than 100 kids about, about buying their sites. I was actually the first person to call Mark and offer to buy the company about a month after he launched. Um, so I'd really been watching Facebook since its birth. And So uh, what, and what, like, what was Mark's response? Was it just a plain no? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, uh, Mark actually was kind of inquisitive about who I was and how I found him. And then when I, I, I mentioned you know, that we're buying companies, I'd be interested in potentially buying Facebook. And well, not Facebook at that point, I think. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> good, good memory. Um, he, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he thought for a moment, he says, well, he says, um, how much is, is, is your company worth? And we had actually just raised money at a, at a $20 million valuation. And so yeah, I, I told them we were, we were, we were just recently valued at $20 million in a, when we raised capital. And then there was a pause and he said, well, he said, okay, that, that sounds like a fair price. I'll sell you a quarter of Facebook for $5 million. And he had literally been, been uh, alive for about a month. He had a couple thousand kids on it. Um, and so it was really, I think, his way of saying, fuck you. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Well, hindsight is twenty twenty there because uh, that would have been the deal of a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that would have been a good IRR. Um, but fast forward 2009, I was just angel investing. Somebody offered to sell me some shares in in Facebook in a secondary transaction. And, and I became aware that there was actually a pretty active secondary market in Facebook shares at a $16 billion valuation. And I thought, you know, I, I've been an equity analyst on Wall Street and I've run a social network. I'm probably as smart as anybody on the planet to actually appreciate what the value of Facebook is. And before I ran the numbers, I, I jotted down $2 billion as my guess on what I, I thought it was worth. And I ran the numbers and was shocked to find I thought it was worth $60 billion and, and I'm sorry, 50 billion at the time. And, um, uh, the math was just very simple. I ended up writing a research report about it because I just had to scream it from the mountaintop because it was such an incredibly shiny object. Um, and my 2014 revenue estimate from my report published in March, 2010 was off by less than 1%. And that's because all I did was continue to extrapolate out their growth and share of total internet time. And just took that uh, and multiplied it by estimates of what the 2014 uh, internet advertising revenue was going to be like. Um, and uh, in any case, that's yeah. I, it's today. You know, I have a, a saying that um, a, a belief in in all kind of consumer facing, uh, you know, particularly social media uh, companies that you're either growing engagement or you're dying. And so I I was a a bull uh, for um, eight years on Facebook until they had their first drop in engagement, which was in the fourth quarter of 2017. Um, and the reason they gave for the drop in engagement was that uh, they had decided to stop users 
from doing the number one thing that people wanted to do on Facebook, which was to read fake news. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, exactly. And so I, you know, I I went negative. I I wrote a, you know, a brief piece about it. You know, I I wrote about it every quarter. Um, And um, what was interesting was, um, you know, that there, Engagement continued to decrease and continued to decrease and continued to decrease for about a year and a half. And that's my view is you're either, you know, growing your engagement, you're dying and, and Facebook was continuing to die. And then it turned around and I'd never seen that. And, and yeah, and so I started looking into it and then became aware they had never really shattered it from the mountaintops, but they had decided to let fake news flourish once again on Facebook. And I, I didn't. I hadn't seen a turnaround in engagement, so I didn't come out and, and immediately become bullish on it. Um, and, and it took me a while to come to terms with. You know, I eventually ended up writing a, a report about Facebook, where you know I, I, I said that you know it, it, it reminded me of, um, and I'm forgetting the name of the company, but the the Sackler family, oh Purdue Pharmaceuticals, if you're familiar with them, and 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 they were basically. Uh, the cause of the opiate epidemic. And my point was that you can make a lot of money selling stuff that people want, uh, even if it's really, really, really bad for them. Um, you know, it's, I think the same thing of the tobacco companies. Um, and, you know, to some degree, you know, their Facebook is playing on that same kind of dopamine rush that you get from tobacco or you get from, you know, the rush that you get from opiates. Um, and, and while it can be good business for a while, you know, longer term, um, you know, I think it's just massively destructive to society as a whole. Uh, and I think ultimately, uh, there's a corporate price to pay for that. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm in line with you there. I, I think that makes sense. I, I forgot who posted it the other day, but somebody posted like the top five most, uh, read news stories on, uh, on Facebook. And it was like, you know, even though they, you know, or, or at least at some point publicly claimed they were, they were shunning fake news. And it was like, what is out info wars and the, and the daily wire and all this other kind of stuff. So there's, there's certainly, I think have just accepted that, that that's a big part of their business. Yeah. And look, I, you know, I, is Mark Zuckerberg evil? I, I don't, I don't know. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I get that it's really hard. It's not easy kind of having to be the person who tells people what's true and what's not. Um, but I just think, you know, how they, you know, ultimately it's just massively damaging to society. Yeah. And so you, you alluded to this uh, very quickly in, 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 you know, your little bit of intro, but you've, you've also invested very significantly into the Israeli entrepreneurial ecosystem. So I want to know what attracted you to invest in Israel initially and what, you know, particular traits of Israeli entrepreneur, entrepreneurs interest you? Sure. Um, you know, I, you know, my, my journey to Israel, I read a book and that opened my eyes to, to, uh, the entrepreneurial, uh, was it startup nation? Um, no, it it was actually, um, uh, a book uh, called the prime ministers, uh, which was the original book that got me interested. This amazing story about a 20 year old, a kid from the UK who moved to Palestine in 46. And then when it became a state, he became a low level uh, government employee. And by the early sixties, he was the right hand man to 
five prime ministers in a row. And it was really the history of Israel seen through his eyes. And, and what I was shocked at reading the book was how alone Israel was and that the U.S. was not the friend that I thought it was. You know, that not, not that the U.S. was acting evil, but just how often our interests are, are not aligned. And so, you know, I wanted to help Israel. Um, and that eventually uh, uh, led me to, 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 to reading Startup Nation. And I made a small investment in an Israeli company. I said I hadn't been in 20 years. I'd been once on business for a few days and thought it was nice, but no special connection. And I was literally there one day. And again, you know, I told you I'm attracted to shiny object. And at the end of one day, you know, I, I went to bed that night uh, being pretty sure I was going to stop everything else I was doing, you know, I, I, in investing and just focus on an, investing in tech companies founded by Israeli because of the vibrance of the ecosystem there and what I saw. And, and while I knew that the world uh, really appreciated Israel for being startup nation, I still uh, of the belief that the world had no idea. And I still think the world has no idea. And it was an incredible few years in investing there. Um, some great companies, um, you know, amazing people. And, and the great thing is, is they're crypto crazy. Uh, so, you know, I, I still go get to go back a lot for the, the work I do in crypto. Yeah, it's actually it's actually quite amazing how many crypto companies were founded in Israel that just nobody, nobody real or that has, you know, eToro obviously is an Israeli company. And, you know, they they are one of the, the largest, you know, platforms for onboarding retail customers into crypto. Bancor is out in Israel. Orbs is out in Israel. Block TV was out in Israel. I mean, there's just, there's, there's so much going on there within the crypto space. Yeah. And it's I'm, so I'm, awesome to visit. And look, I mean, this is cryptography um, and there's a lot of that going on in, uh, in Israel. The zero right knowledge curve. proof was yeah. invented in Israel. And I think that's a foundational technology of, for, for all of crypto. And so transitioning into crypto, what was your first interaction with, with the cryptocurrency space? Maybe, you know, your initial, initial interaction when you first heard about Bitcoin and your initial kind of response to it. And then when did you kind of come to terms with, you know, that, that Bitcoin and crypto was the shiny object and it, it only made sense for you to go in full time? Sure. So uh, I first really uh, looked, started looking into it uh, in late uh, 2013, a good friend called, asked me what I thought of Bitcoin. I said, yeah, I thought it was stupid. And he said, how much about it do you know? And I go, nothing. He said, well, if you get smart, I'd love to get your opinion because, you know, I just made a big bet on it. And this was a, a, a really smart guy and a, a good friend of mine. And so anything that he was betting on, I wanted to get smarter on. And the first thing that I do quite often when I want to get smart on something is I'll hold a conference call and I'll get three or four of the smartest people uh, that I can find on a call to teach me about it. And they do that because I'll, I'll bring an audience that they want to reach. And so um, I, I had a conference call on Bitcoin in J January of 2014. Um, and, uh, you know, Barry Silbert from DCG was on it. Chris Larson, who was running Ripple, you know, had just founded Ripple, you know, uh, was on it. Um, and uh, it was I've done more than 100 of these calls over the last 10 years. And it was the only call that I've ever done um, that was uh, live blogged by the Wall Street Journal. And they started the live blog by saying, you know, we're live blogging a conference call being held by Lou Kerner, Wall Street's Bitcoin expert. <laughs> oh, man, that's so, awesome. That's so, so funny. Day one, I was literally anointed by the Wall Street. And literally, uh, I, I was asked to keynote what at the time was the largest uh, uh, uh at the time, it was really just Bitcoin conference uh, in, in the world. 
uh, in New York, and I think New York Bitcoin World, something like that. And it was great. And and so I spent, uh, you know, for for about a year. I would say I spent like 10, 15% of my time, you know, getting into the ecosystem. I did a couple more calls. I made a couple investments in the space. Uh, I bought BitcoinWallet.com, you know, once a domainer, always a domainer, invested in a company called ChangeTip, um, you know, which was, you know, a, an early way where you could tip people for good comments on Reddit and, and other places. And, um, but, you know, as again, you know, I say I'm attracted to shiny objects and actually, you know, the, the, the whole year from a price perspective, Bitcoin was getting less shiny and less shiny. And, you know, and while I look this like look 600 it, down to a hundred dollars, 2014, something like that. Yeah. I don't remember the exact prices, but it was not going up. Um, yeah. and there was not growing, you know, the, the interest in it wasn't, wasn't growing in a way that was palpable. Um, and so, you know, after about a year, I really just kind of lost interest and kind of moved on and fast forward to 2017 when things started going crazy on June 29th, 2017, I, I held another conference call with, you know, four of the smartest people, uh, again, you know, that, that I could find. Um, and, uh, and one of them was Olaf Carlson. We, uh, you know, a, a, an active VC, um, Polychain, yeah. Yeah. It's Polychain, you know, super smart young guy. And he actually said something on the call that, um, you know, I, 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 you know, now described as that piece of puzzle that in and of itself, it could be just like a squiggly line. But when you take that piece and put it in with all the other pieces you have, all of a sudden you can see the puzzle and see what it is. Um, and that's what I felt like. Literally, uh, there was a word for it. I didn't know at the time, but uh, called a gestalt shift where one moment you see the world as one thing and then you get a new piece of information and the world is something completely different. And that's what happened to me. And I was in a manic state for three months. Uh, I was writing feverishly small articles on Medium because I never know what I think of anything until I read what I've written about it. And um, after three months, I published, put all my thoughts together in a thought piece called Seven Thoughts on Crypto after three months down the rabbit hole and published it on Medium. And for three days, it was the most read piece on Medium that was crypto related. Um, and after that, per medium, I was the third most influential crypto blogger in the world, uh, which proved my first of the seven points, which is nobody knows anything about crypto. <laughs> um, and uh, Which still know. holds true, by the way. Yeah, definitely. It, it <laughs> totally does. I'm actually writing a piece right now called, you know, seven more thoughts on crypto after three years down the rabbit hole. Um, and that's my first point is that, is that still, you know, three years later, I really feel, you know, and then I, I, I'm making a list of, of some of the people that I've learned the most from over the last three years, because, you know, there are some, a, a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of insanely smart people, uh, uh, in the space. Um, but still, I think, you know, uh, the only thing I know for sure is that whatever it turns out to be is something different than when anybody is saying it's going to be today. Yeah, no, certainly, certainly. And I think that's the case with any young, you know, emerging technology, right? Or emerging oh, company that you yeah. just, you just, you never know. And yeah, I mean, to your point on the, you know, nobody knows anything about crypto. I mean, this is just such, I mean, just think about the ecosystem that it's become since, since 2014. I mean, like, you know, we, miners are their entire own ecosystem of, of problems and challenges and, you know, solutions that need to be built, whether it's like hedging their risk or, you know, getting loans against their equipment. Like there's so much going on in the, in the mining space. There's so much going on in like the, you know, developing protocols space. There's so much going on on like a second layer, um, you know, in the, in the second layer space. There's so much going on in data, in custody, <laughs> in trading. Like there's just, 
there's so many pieces of this ecosystem to so to you know i don't think anybody has fully grasped you know maybe with the exception of barry silbert you know now that you mentioned him earlier you know it doesn't feel like anybody's really fully grasped the full i guess schmear that has been put out by crypto (laughs) no and it's crazy right and it's 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 really infinite um it's impact and so there's absolutely obviously no way to keep up on what's going on so you know over time i found myself kind of um you know making the area i'm trying to deeply understand smaller and smaller and smaller (laughs) and so I'm not sure if it was originally so small, but a few months after going down that rabbit hole, you founded a company called Crypto Oracle. So what was the original vision for the firm and how did that evolve over time? Sure. So, you know, I was a VC. Uh, you know, I, I really liked being a VC. It was it's hard being a VC. I think, you know, most you know, the vast majority of VCs uh, underperform uh, the stock market. <laughs> Um, so at, as an asset class, again, you know, you really have to have an edge, you know, and, uh, I, you know, I had an edge, I, I felt in, in Israel, I was able to develop a, a reputation, uh, in, in Israel where I was able to get into a lot of the, the top deals. And my belief was, uh, given the thought leadership I had established, uh, I, you know, I could get in a lot of the best deals in crypto. And so the idea is, uh, in starting crypto Oracle, um, you know, and I started with a partner was, you know, we were going to raise a hundred million dollar security token fund. Um, you know, I, by that time, you know, I was a belief that, you know, security tokens were the next, you know, big thing. And, and, um, we raised a couple million dollars in January of 2018 because, uh, there were some legal and technical issues that still needed to be solved with security tokens. Uh, and I joke <laughs> that while we spent the money, uh, we did not, uh, solve the problems. Um, and, and here we are two years later and, and I, you know, and, and it feels like we're finally on the cusp of those, uh, problems being solved, you know, uh, but still, you know, security tokens are, are, you know, are, are still not really a thing. Um, and, and so, so wh- why do you think that is, do you think that's because of a of regulatory issue or do you think that's lack of liquidity? What do you think is the, the holdup yeah, there? I mean, I, I think yeah, you know, oh, you know, there's a you know, the regulatory problems have been atrocious, you know. But also the question is, you know, what what value are they bringing that you can't get elsewhere? And you know, there there are costs obviously today of being on the blockchain and such. And you know, are are the advantages greater than the costs? Uh, and I think that we're still at a point where the answer is is pretty clearly no. Uh, but with you know everything going on now, particularly in DeFi, and and I think you know the, having made a lot of headway around the world on the regulatory front, yeah, I I, th- I think the time could finally be right. And so, you know, one of the the you know I th- I think coinciding with your your thought leadership, you know, the value you place on that, you place a similar value on community. Um, and I I I feel like you know through your conference calls and everything you do, that's in in, in Crypto Mondays, which I'd love for you to kind of get into. You know that that's 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 always been a big thing thing for you. So I'd love you know to, to know how you define community and and how you think you can optimize community. Sure. So as I said earlier, I really think that crypto and its impact is going to be infinite. It's going to be just as you know, it's going to be bigger than the internet, which is yeah. You know, and the internet changed everything. Every industry is so different today because of the internet, uh, and it's even going to be no more so be, because of crypto. And and so I think you know when people see the crypto light. I think to some degree, everybody sees something different 
um, because everybody looked at the world through a different prism based on their life experience. And so when I saw crypto, um, I really quickly came to the belief that the biggest difference between crypto and everything that came before crypto was community. And now for the first time in history, instead of, you know, there being a man in the middle who's, you know, generally solving for himself, you know, we can now algorithmically, you know, set up institutions, set up ecosystems that solve for the community. Uh, And I thought that that was, you know, incredibly powerful. Um, You know, that said, I also recognize that it was very early in terms of, of solving the major challenges about managing communities, uh, you know, the, the first being, you know, how do you govern uh, a community, a, you know, a DAO, and, um, and, and how do you incentivize the community members? Uh, because the way that I define community is I think of communities as being ecosystems where everybody gets more out of it than they put into it. And, and that's really magical. Um, and that, you know, and, and I also think that the size of a community is highly correlated to uh, the differential between how much it costs the community to manufacture what it is the community members want and the value that the community members put on that good. And so the bigger that differential, the bigger the community can become. And that's why today the biggest communities are religions. And that's because religions uh, manufacture faith and faith doesn't cost anything to manufacture. And yet uh, for many of the community members, you know, it, you know, it has a, a almost infinite value. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what I see in crypto is how do you create communities that, you know, have that essence of everybody getting more out of it than, than, than they put in. And it turns out not to be so easy. Yeah, I mean, what do you think the best examples that we've seen in the crypto space are? I mean, you know, we're we're seeing with with DeFi some some of the biggest challenges, right? With with the example of Sushi Chef the other day running away with five million dollars worth of sushi or whatever the number was. So, so where do you kind of see you know us being closest within the crypto space, uh, and 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 how do you think we start to build you know true communities where where everybody can get more than they put in? Sure. Well, you know, the, I mean, Sushi Swap, <laughs> um, you know, looked, I mean, the, the rules enabled him to do what he did. Um, you know, and I think it's interesting if, if you take a look at the statistics um, uh, of Uniswap's growth trajectory, uh, it's maintained the same growth trajectory, just Sushi Swap bought a massive amount of additional liquidity. Uh, uh, liquidity and then that liquidity left. And so I, I'm not sure that you, how much Uniswap got damaged, um, you know, but what certainly I think it, it, everybody can agree with is that SushiSwap brought a lot more liquidity to the, to the marketplace. Uh, you know, and ultimately I think that's a, that's a good thing for the marketplace. Yeah. To, to some degree, anybody who comes in here, um, you know, even people you know who who, who came who were here for the money, and that's going to be most people. Um, you know, those people are incredibly valuable community members, um, and so you know, I, I don't. Yeah, we look, need liquidity. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, exactly. speculation breeds liquidity. Yes, and 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 certainly, you know, some percentage of those people will leave when you know when. Uh, when it's no longer easy to make money like it like it feels like it is today. Um, but that's fine. 
Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm about a big tent and, um, you know, I, I think one of the weird things, uh, about crypto, uh, is, you know, all the hate that goes around, um, you know, even though we're such a tiny little industry today, uh, but, uh, you know, I get back to something that, uh, that, that learning about the history of Israel taught me, which is that, um, revolutions are messy. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of, 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 you know, community, you know, crypto Twitter is, is certainly a vicious community <laughs> of people. Yeah. And look, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I think, um, everything's a double-edged sword, uh, but you know, the power of community, I think is, is so powerful that, um, you know, the, the Twitter hater, you know, crypto Twitter, you know, with I me, mean, whatever you want to call it, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think it'll have less of an impact than I thought it would have when I first, uh, when I first started. And so, um, you know, in your, your, you know, in your early life, um, you know, you spent a, a lot of time in equity research. So, uh, you know, I'm wondering how that, you know, experience prepared you for the crypto space. Like what techniques were you able to bring over from your time, you know, in equity research at Goldman and other places um, as it relates to, uh, you know, do, doing due diligence on particular assets and, uh, you know, what did you have to uh, learn specifically for crypto? Sure. So, I mean, that, that's a great question. You know, when, when I first saw the crypto light, kind of my first thought was, you know, I'll be the Mary Meeker of crypto. And, and Mary Meeker was the first Wall Street analyst to really write about the internet. Uh, and, you know, she went on to uh, have just an amazing career on Wall Street before becoming a VC. Um, and so, uh, so, uh, so I thought that, you know, and I started digging into valuing cryptocurrencies and, uh, I was a couple of weeks in when I realized, oh God, there already really is a, a, a Mary Meeker of crypto. Uh, and, uh, he was like 25 years old at the time. That was Chris Berniski. <laughs> um, you know, and so I got to spend some time with Chris, uh, when he was still at ARC, uh, and got to know Kathy Wood at ARC, um, and, and really, um, you know, a- after a few months became of the belief that in, in terms of utility tokens at the time that they really can't be valued, that they were like um, valuing tulips to some degree. And, you know, I mean, outside of the utility value of the token itself, I mean, it's kind of like uh, frequent flyer miles. You know, for say Chuck E. Cheese tokens, but yeah, yeah, either one. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, they, they have a value but it's not a million dollars a mile. Um, right. You know, uh, but, you know, so, 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 so to some degree, uh, you know, what, what, yeah, the, there was a lot of charting. I was an equity, as an equity analyst, I was into fundamentals, you know, into price earnings and, you know, and ultimately, you know, stocks are ultimately at the end of the day about cash and how, how cash generative they are and free cash flows and free cash flow multiples. You know, but, you know, crypto was obviously not that at all, um, you know, and it was more like, let's say, you know, certainly Bitcoin now I think of as gold and, and what drives the price of gold. It's it's simply, you know, demand and you know, supply and demand. Um, and so charting and understanding, you know, th- uh, things that, you know, charting can, can tell you, uh, which is not something that I'd ever spent time doing, you know, I realized was was something that was helpful. But ultimately, also, I come back to this whole idea of engagement and, and of the belief that if you can engage an audience and get audiences to, to use your products, that's the hard part. Um, you know, figuring out how to monetize it, uh, I think is, is much easier. So I, you know, I continue to look for, 
for products that you know are are engaging audiences. And so, you know, you mentioned that you know there there are no traditional fundamentals for crypto. Do you think community is kind of like the fundamental for crypto? Like, how do you how do you define how do you define fundamentals in this space, or or even start to try to define fundamentals in this space? And how do you think tokens will ultimately accrue value? So, yeah. You know, so you know, understanding the vitality of a of a community, uh, I think you know. We're, we're early days of doing that. And, you know, I think you're, you're helping with that, with the data, you know, that you're collecting and, you know, and sharing and analyzing, um, you know, cause that's certainly, you know, one of the ways that we understand the vibrancy of a community today. Um, the, you know, when I went to East Denver, actually uh, earlier this year, um, what really blew me away uh, was how strong the community was. And, you know, I really came away from that. Um, you know, a, a huge bull on on Ethereum, and thought that they had really dug a moat uh, that I thought was you know going to be really hard to you know to penetrate. That you couldn't come out with something that was a little better than ETH. You know, you had to come out with something that was really dramatically, dramatically, dramatically. It's, it's, better. And it's funny. I don't think many people talk about moats in crypto, but there the Ethereum moat is is really freaking impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah I think yeah there, there are a few moats. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's building a moat. I think maybe Chainlink is is building a moat. Um, you know, but you know certainly what we're seeing is that um, in DeFi, Tether kind you know, of has too. Yeah, certainly. You know, Tether. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, a moat around scale, right? Scale is a great moat. Um, you know, to to me, one of the most amazing moments in 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 my time, like aha moments in crypto was when, you know, it came out that Tether didn't have, you know, only had 75 cents in the bank didn't for every matter. dollar outstanding and, and, and nobody cared. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Right. But that really helped solidify, um, you know, the fact that, you know, everything is a confidence game. Right. And, and as long as, you know, you have confidence that, you know, that, that, that the next guy is going to take your Tether for a dollar you don't care how much money they have in the bank, right? You know, and and would Tether have been okay if it was sixty percent or fifty percent or forty percent or thirty percent? You know, nobody don't knows. Give, don't give Paolo any more ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what one of my really strongly held beliefs is that you know everything works till it doesn't. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how long it lasts. But you were you were going in on the on the the the, the moat around Ethereum and kind of seeing community there and how you you know how you think that relates to fundamentals. Yeah, and it's it's tough to put a value on it. Um, other than again, at this at a at a macro point, you know, sometimes you just feel comfortable that you know that this is a really important thing, and if it's and it's and it's broadly underappreciated, um, and just going on those two things made me feel comfortable. Um, you know, uh, uh, investing in you know in in Ethereum, and and that it was really going to be, you know, uh, yeah, I, I have an opportunity to be a you know another trillion dollar thing. And so, h- how do you? And, and this is a very difficult question, so I'm not expecting you to come up with a, with a pure answer on the spot. But when does something become a bubble? Right? When does it become? You know. There's really something here. It's underappreciated to, hey, this thing is completely blown up into a bubble, like many are saying that DeFi is becoming. Like, wh- what, what is that point in which that happens? Sure. Um, well, like with the stock market, uh, I'm a big believer in the Buffett Index, which is 
GDP, uh, I'm sorry, which is market cap over GDP, right? It's a really uh, macro view of the market, and that's what Warren Buffett uses. Um, and so I think like you can look at that today and we're all time high territory. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you can look at that and go, okay, you know, we are in a bubble, right? I, I think that's a, an easier bubble to see. And, you know, again, you know, things work till they don't nobody, you know, how long will the bubble last a year, five years, a hundred years, nobody knows, you know, but you know, probably closer to a year than a hundred years. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I have a, a word that I use to describe the tendency of markets to become bubbles and crash and become bubbles again. And I call that capitalism, right? That's, that's all it is, you know, and the government's kind of main job is to kind of tamp that, you know, economic job is to tamp that down. Um, And, you know, but it turns out they're really bad at that. So (laughs) all we do is go from bubbles to crash and bubbles. And, and it always, you know, it amazes me, you know, every time we get in a bubble, people go, you know, oh my God, you know, a bubble. And then every time it crashes, oh my God, a crash. When in fact, that's all there is. And, and I think one of the big lessons that I've learned over time is, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows what tomorrow is. You know, and, and we have bubbles and crashes and, and it's, it's hard to have context on exactly where you are in that cycle. The mistake I made when I was running my first internet company was I let the market tell me how much my company was worth at the top and at the bottom, thinking that the market spoke truth. The market doesn't speak truth. It's a signal and it shouldn't be ignored. Um, but, you know, at, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the best investors just ride these things out and they don't try to pick the top and they don't try to pick the bottom. They, 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 they're thematically driven. Um, and they continue to invest in, in that theme through the highs and, and, and the lows. And so, you know, well, certainly crypto winter, uh, was, was hard, uh, for, for everybody to take. I think it was maybe a little easier than me because yeah, I, I never lost faith in crypto and, and never thought that the market was saying crypto isn't a thing. I just think the market was telling me that, you know, that it's now on the, you know, on the, on the crashing side. And then, you know, at some point it'll return back to the bubble side and just, you know, hang on until we get there. Cause that's when you make money. And so speaking of thematics and themes, you've recently shifted a lot of your, your focus and attention towards stable coins. So what particularly about stable coins, you know, interested you the most and kind of brought you down this, this latest rabbit hole? Sure. So, you know, again, you know, getting attracted to shiny objects within crypto, uh, kind of the, the first real shiny object I saw was um, uh, speculation in Asia. <laughs> so I was in Asia four times last year, learned a lot, had a great time, uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, couldn't really see how to, how to monetize that. Uh, and then when DeFi started taking off, really, you know, in the, in the latter part of 17 and um, I'm sorry, latter part of 19 and, you know, really in the early part of 20, you know, I started focusing a lot of time there. And, you know, I think of stable coins as a subset of, you know, of, of DeFi. And, you know, again, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, and, and quite often shiny objects are, are things that are going up and to the right. And, you know, what I saw with stable coins was that they were going up and to the right. I saw a, a market, depending on how you define it, um, yeah, I, at the low end is $30 trillion that are just floating around you know, from a market size. So it's the biggest market. And by the way, it's growing very rapidly. And you know, f- 
it's a market that is also um, that has has had a monopoly until now, and kind of for the first time, the monopoly is ending, and so it has all of the markings of an industry that is just ripe for massive wealth generation. Um, you know, uh, and, and where do you think that value is going to accrue? That, that, that wealth generation. You know, I, I think that like, if you ask where is it going to accrue in the internet, it's going to accrue everywhere. There are so many different, you know, different parts of it, whether it's, you know, it's helping people, you know, leverage uh, stable coins for, um, you know, for, for payments. You know, I think we're in the really early days of, of that, um, you know, and, you know, what are stable coins going to become? You know, what, what stable coins are people going to want to use? What things are they going to want stable coins pegged to? Um, you know, we're such in the early days of this, but I think the opportunity for innovation, you know, is again, it's the early days and, and you know, and, and the ability, obviously, everything works in DeFi uh, like Legos. Um, you know, the innovation here comes so fast because we can just pick between these different Legos, come up with one simple twist on it, and, and, and then you have SushiSwap. And so you recently founded Just Stable. Can you kind of walk us through what that is? Sure. So um, Just Stable really started out um, as a partnership uh, with um, DeWeb, uh, which is a, a company that's kind of building out Web3 enabled um, message boards. And so this was to create a, uh, a Web3 enabled, you know, message board ecosystem for, for the stablecoin ecosystem. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're getting uh, a lot of great engagement. It's, it's early days, um, uh, but a, a lot more activity than I assumed we had. And then I've been, you know, then, you know, have been using it. Uh, and I, I think, you know, I'm excited about growing it into really just this kind of uber stablecoin brand. Uh, that I, you know, that, that I think can encompass a lot of different things over time. And so what do you believe are the most promising use cases for stable coins? I mean, I know you mentioned that we're early, but like, do you see remittances being really interesting? Do you think just day-to-day payments? Do you think as, as a, as an on, a fiat on-ramp into crypto, like, like what, what specific use cases, um, you know, do you see for stable coins? Sure. So, you know, myself, one of the other uh, uh, kind of the main project that I'm working on now is called Peg Network, which is a a partnership with Bancor. um, And it's a stablecoin platform to enable any ERC-20 token to be turned into a stable coin. Um, And so we'll be launching in October, um, you know, with allowing any... ERC-20 token over a certain market cap, you know, low double-digit market cap, probably just to start um, to be turned into a, a, a stable coin. Um, so just increasing the number of uh, ERC-20 tokens that you can get a loan against of, of effectively. Um, and then over time, you know, if you think about too, you know, well, what is an ERC-20 token? So, um, you know, we, we've got a number of different partnerships we'll be announcing uh, out of Peg Network, but one of them that's already been announced is with Fertalo as they're digitizing uh, cap tables. And now you can think of, you know, of companies instead of issuing more stock or getting a venture debt loan that, uh, you know, venture debt companies are looking for 15 to 20% returns, uh, they can now lock up 
shares that they have in treasury into ERC-20 tokens and use that as collateral to get loans with. Um, you know, you can tokenize mortgages, you know, turn those into ERC-20 uh, uh, stable tokens, stable coins. So, you know, I, I think you're going to see just this explosion of stable coins. And that's even before now, you know, they start to become programmable. Um, and then, you know, you can start paying people, you know, in stable coins, interest on their stable coins, you know, yield farming in stable coins is in the early days. Uh, so I think that the, you know, what I'm excited about is it's a massive market. It's growing. Um, it's the end of a monopoly. Uh, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's got all of the markers of just a, a, a huge opportunity for wealth creation. So do you, do you think, and I think you kind of hit on this, um, but do you, do you think high yield products and, and DeFi will continue to be, you know, the, 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 you know, among the most major applications for stable coins as, as this market grows? You know, well, look, the, obviously the, the major use for stable coins up until today is, um, you know, is, is for trading, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's what Tether has killed it on. Um, and, you know, the, the yield farming you know, that we're getting, you know, that we're seeing today and, and these high yields are obviously made available because of this wealth creation um, from the tokens, you know, that, that, that are accruing to the tokens in these DeFi products. And so, you know, it seems as long as that continues, um, you know, I think there's going to be you know, lots of opportunity for really crazy yields. Um, but yeah, obviously, you know, these are ultimately capitalistic markets. And whenever there's capitalism, you get more competition and then you get too much competition. Um, so, you know, that's coming, you know, I mean, already we're seeing the, the number of DeFi product projects coming, you know, yield farming things coming out, you know, is, is starting to become dizzying. And the only thing, you know, for sure, they're going to be more tomorrow. And so what do you think the biggest risks are for stable coins and, and the largest barriers to adoption? Well, the largest barriers to adoption is still the on-ramps and, and off-ramps. It's, it's still incredibly complex for the vast majority of, of people. Uh, and that's why one of the things I'm very excited about in stablecoins are central bank digital currencies. Because, uh, yeah, and I see those as a, as a subset. And you know, uh, the more central bank digital currencies there are, the more people who are going to have wallets and the more people who are going to learn uh, how to use digital wallets. And the more people who learn how to use the digital wallets, that's what we need. Um, you know, there's there's a tremendous value already to be had uh, from from stable coins. Just in you know how much less it costs to you know to make remittances as you know as, as you indicated, just make cross border payments, you know, and just have it happen you know in in a timely fashion. I mean, such huge advantages. But again, the disadvantages today uh, for most people outweigh those advantages because of the complexity. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll address those, you know, there's obviously regulatory risk, you know, and you know, I, I think we'll get regulatory arbitrage from those jurisdictions that, um, you know, that, are, you know, have more favorable regulations for stable coins and, and all of crypto, because that's the future. Um, you know, it'd be like, you know, government, you know, overly regulating the Internet and saying, you know, that the Internet is bad because of porn, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And so. How do you think central bank digital currencies fit in with the rest of the stablecoin narrative? Do you think the success of CBDCs versus stablecoins is, is something that has to be mutually exclusive? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, again, I, I think that they're very, very synergistic. 
Um, and you know what we're not going to see out of central bank digital currencies is is a lot of innovation, um, just because that's not what governments are really good at, uh, and that's not really to some degree what they're optimizing for. So you know I think that. Um, you'll see the you know the most progressive governments will enable their money to be programmable, and and that programming will be done, um, you know by by others, and that program can be used by stablecoins. And so you know you know I think the you know what you'll see I think over time is more and more people using stablecoins that you know are able to bring them all kinds of other value just beyond the value that they're getting from their money today. And so uh, what impact do you think the rise of stable coins will have on the rest of the crypto market? Do you think that the emergence of CBDCs would have a similar impact? Yeah, look, I think a rising tide raises all boats here. Um, you know, we're in such the early days, you know, when Libra came out, uh, you know, that again, shone the light on all of crypto. And I think that was you know, very positive for crypto and, and ultimately, this is happening, you know, how fast, when, nobody knows. Um, but the more people who are using the tools that they need to use uh, to use crypto, uh, you know, the, the more people who are building those tools, the, the better. I, you know, I, I was there for the start of, uh, you know, when YouTube emerged. And, and it was really one video that, that, that somebody uploaded uh, called Lazy Sunday. And I, you know, I, and I had been around in internet video since 2000 and that was 2005 when, when that happened. And, you know, you needed, um, you know, you needed the pipes to be fat enough to enable video to be really be a thing, uh, on the internet. And, you know, so it was the right company at the right time. I, you know, Bill Gross, my deal up has a great Ted talk where he did a data driven analysis of the more than 200 companies started and it's all about timing. Um, and so, um, you know, we're all sitting around here waiting for this thing to become mass media, waiting for the tools to become easy enough to use such that, you know, when somebody makes that lazy Sunday of crypto, that thing that everybody wants to use, um, that they'll be able to use them. And so other than stable coins, what has you most excited about the crypto market right now? And what are you most nervous about? Well, certainly, I mean, DeFi broadly, um, I wrote a piece a, a couple months ago titled DeFi is crypto's Netscape moment. Um, you know, the, you know and, and Netscape was really the thing that, that made the internet easy enough to use that people started using it and, you know, obviously created massive value. Um, you know, and, and while DeFi you know, uh, uh, itself isn't making it easier to use, I think it's a compelling enough product, you know, kind of like uh, junk bonds, right? You know, there didn't used to be junk bonds. And then one day junk bonds were created and every investment bank on Wall Street said, you know, we're not going to deal in junk bonds. You know, they're, they're, they're bad. And, you know, this one investment bank, Drexel Burnham, basically made it into a, a, a huge thing. And why is it a huge thing? Because people wanted it. Um, you know, it's, it's just that, you know, and, and, and Drexel made it available. And I think people are going to want DeFi. Um, and, you know, and I think other people are, are going to figure out how to make it more and more available. Certainly Yearn. And, is, and uh, why do you think people are going to want DeFi? Is it because of 
is it just a, I, to me at this point it feels like it's 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 very much a speculator game right and people want decentralized finance because of the yields do you think there's there's some other compelling reason that underlies no, no, that no. that's why people wanted junk bonds junk bonds right, right. just the money thing. junk bonds are the thing right. people wanted yield right right people want yield it's a huge massive thing that everybody wants and obviously you know there, there's there's risk and and we don't even know what the risks are yet right in 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 these defi it's 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 well so we, we certainly know some of them but i'm sure there's so many others that we just yes. have no i mean just smart contract risk and smart contract risk on top of smart contract risk and smart contract risk on smart contract insurance and yep. you know these platforms getting hacked i mean there's so many already so yeah right i mean everybody you know and by the way it's the same thing on on, on the traditional financial systems as well you know back in 2008 everybody had insurance through aig and thought they were protected, except AIG was completely, totally bankrupt, right? If the government hadn't stepped in, <laughs> right, um, right, and that's the downside, right? I mean, and that's capitalism. You know, the problem is, is capitalism fundamentally, uh, uh, because of the the um, bubbles and crashes, which is what capitalism is, is it, it doesn't work, right? If the government didn't step in and backstop the banks, um, there would be no banks. Right. You know, there would be no airlines. Right. So so what happens? What happens, right, if 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 Uniswap gets hacked or YFI gets hacked, right? I mean, we saw in Q2 five massive DeFi hacks. I mean, do you think that's just an impediment um, or a roadblock or do you think it it, it it could cause a more fundamental issue? Yeah, there I, I call them plane crashes. Right. In the early days of the planes, there were a lot of crashes. And every time there was a plane crash, they would do an investigation and then try and fix the planes so that plane crash wouldn't happen again. And now, you know, 100 years later, there really aren't any plane crashes anymore because we've kind of solved for almost you know, everything that can happen in, in, in a plane crash. And I think we're on that road in, in DeFi, right? We're solving for the crashes that we're seeing, right? There's still a lot more crashes to come, um, but you know, we'll solve for them. And so how do you think of DeFi, you know, you know, the ICO bubble was also a search for yield, right? And, and that kind of, you know, disappeared. And, and maybe that was just because of, of government regulation and, you know, the SEC, you know, stepping in. But, but, but how do you think of, you know, ICOs as it relates to, to DeFi, right? I mean, do you think that they share many similar characteristics? And do you think that the U.S. government can you know, step in here and, and start to call some of these things securities and, and shut this whole market down? Well, certainly you have the, they will share in common the bubble and crash <laughs> um, because everything shares that in, in capitalism. Um, you know, they, they'll, they'll share scams because again, that's a fundamental part of, uh, of, of capitalism. Um, you know, there will be crashes, uh, uh, you know, as, as already have been, you know, but ultimately, you know, DeFi and, and the decentralization of, uh, of, of, and I don't want to say everything, um, but, you know, if, if, if you take a look at internet retail at the end of 2019, I think it was something like 12% of all retail was over the internet. And that's what they achieved for 25 years. So, so change happens slowly. And I think DeFi is just going to be like that. I think, you know, if in 25 years, DeFi has 12% of CeFi, 
going to be a massive, 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 massive market. And by the way, everything's moving faster. So uh, my assumption is it'll probably happen faster than that, but it'll happen in fits and starts. And I mean, I, I really believe this is a, you know, a brand new industry that's emerging, um, you know, and it's incredibly exciting. And so a fun kind of final question is uh, that if you could give yourself one piece of advice on the for the day that you graduated college, what would you tell yourself? So it's a, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I would probably say, you know, uh, uh, I would say that I wish I had more patience, I guess, because, you know, because nothing happens fast. And I took, you know, again, like going back to the Internet, you know, things not happening fast or things crashing um, as signs that things weren't happening. Um, you know, it's hard to have that, uh, when you're young, uh, you know, the, the, the patients, um, you know, and, you know, to really believe when you, you know, when you have a belief, you know, understand why you have that belief and, and, you know, hold on to it through thick and thin, thick and thin, if, uh, if it should be held on to, um, yeah, and, and, uh, and the other piece I think should be when, when, <laughs> when Mark offers you 25% of his company for $5 million, take it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but then I wouldn't be here with you. <laughs> exactly. You have way better things to do. Uh, I think you already do have way better things to do. So I appreciate the time, Lou. Um, I appreciate all the insight. Where, where can people find out about you and where can people follow you? Um, they can follow me on Twitter. The great thing about uh, being Lou Kerner is there is not another. So you, know, you can get me there on Gmail, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. You know, uh, uh, go check out Just Stable if you're into stable coins. There's a lot of good dialogue going on there. Uh, and come to uh, Stable Coins Are Killing It every Thursday at 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. Actually, you know, obviously nobody's going to hear that this week, but we, we've got a great call uh, uh, this week with um, uh, the founders of Ampleforth, which I think is a super interesting stablecoin and, project. And people can watch those videos on YouTube if they missed old episodes? Exactly. Exactly. And that's on um, the channel is called on YouTube, Just Stable. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for uh, for joining. I mean, you're always, you know, full of overflowing and endless knowledge. So always love to get to pick your brain up a little bit and, and hope to be able to do it again at another time. Well, this was great. Thanks a lot, Josh. And, th and congrats on all your success. It's been fun to watch. All right. Thanks, Lou.